Welcome to the Sleep Charming Podcast, the podcast where I help you drift off for a good night's sleep or simply take a moment to relax. So sit back, take a deep breath, and let me read you an old story. When Mary Lennox was sent to Mistlethwaite Manor to live with her uncle, everybody said she was the most disagreeable-looking child ever seen. It was true, too. She had a little thin face and a little thin body, thin light hair and a sour expression. Her hair was yellow and her face was yellow because she had been born in India and was always ill in one way or another. Her father had held a position in the English government and had always been busy and ill himself. And her mother had been a great beauty, who cared only to go to parties and amuse herself with people. She had not wanted a little girl at all, and when Mary was born, she handed her over to the care of an ayah, who was made to understand that if she wished to please the Mem Sahib, she must keep the child out of sight as much as possible. So when she was a sickly, fretful, ugly little baby, she was kept out of the way. And when she became a sickly, fretful, toddling little thing, she was kept out of the way also. She never remembered seeing anything but the faces of her ayah and the other native servants, and as they always obeyed her and gave her her own way in everything, because the Mem Sahib would be angry if she was disturbed by her crying. By the time she was six years old, she was as tyrannical and selfish as a little pig as ever lived. The young English governess who came to teach her to read and write disliked her so much that she gave up her place in three months, and when other governesses came to try and fill it, they were always sent away in a shorter time than the first one. So if Mary had not chosen to really want to know how to read books, she would never have learned her letters at all. A frightfully hot morning, when she was about nine years old, she awakened feeling very cross, and she became crosser still when she saw that the servant who stood by her bedside was not Aya. Why did you come, she said to the strange woman. The woman looked frightened, but she only stammered that Aya could not come, When Mary threw herself into a passion and beat and kick her, she looked only more frightened and repeated that it was not possible for Aya to come to Miss Missy Sahib. There was something mysterious in the air that morning. Nothing was done in its regular order, and several of the native servants seemed missing, while those whom Mary saw slunk or hurried about with ashy, scared faces. But no one would tell her anything, and her Aya did not come. She was actually left alone as the morning went on. And at last, she wandered out into the garden and began to play by herself under a tree near the veranda. She pretended that she was making a flower bed, and she stuck the big scarlet hibiscus blossoms into little heaps of earth, all the time growing more and more angry, and muttering to herself the things she would say, and the name she would call Sadie when she returned. Pig, pig, daughter of pig, she said, because to call a native a pig is the worst insult of all. She was grinding her teeth and saying this over and over again when she heard her mother come out onto the veranda with someone. She was with a fair young man, and they stood talking to each other in low, strange voices. Mary knew the fair young man who looked like a boy. She had heard that he was a very young officer who had just come from England. The child stared at him, but she stared most at her mother. She always did this when she had a chance to see her. Because of the Mem Sahib, Mary used to call her that oftener than anything else. Was such a tall, slim, pretty person and wore such lovely clothes. Her hair was like curly silk, and she had a delicate little nose, which seemed to be disdaining things, and she had large, laughing eyes. All of her clothes were thin and floating, and Mary said they were full of lace. They looked fuller of lace than ever this evening, but her eyes were not laughing at all. 
They were large and scared, and lifted imploringly to the fair boy officer's face. Is it so very bad? Oh, is it? Mary heard her mother saying. Awfully, the young man answered in a trembling voice. Awfully, Mrs. Lennox, you ought to have gone to the hills two weeks ago. The Mem Sahib wrung her hands. Oh, I know I ought, she cried. I only stayed to go to that silly dinner party. What a fool I was. At that very moment, such a loud sound of wailing broke out from the service quarters that she clutched to the young man's arms, and Mary stood shivering from head to foot. The wailing grew wilder and wilder. What is that? What is that? Mrs. Lennox gasped. Someone has died, answered the boy officer. He did not say it had broken out among your servants. I did not know, the Memzahib cried. Come with me, come with me, as she turned and ran into the house. After that, appalling things happened, and the mysteriousness of the morning was explained to Mary. The cholera had broken out in its most fatal form, and people were dying like flies. The ayah had been taken ill in the night, and it was because she had just died that the servants had wailed in the huts. Before the next day, three other servants were dead, and others had ran away in terror. There was panic on every side, and dying people in all the bungalows. During the confusion and the bewilderment of the second day, Mary hid herself in the nursery, and was forgotten by everyone. Nobody thought of her, nobody wanted her, and strange things happened of which she knew nothing. Mary alternately cried and slept through the hours. She only knew that people were ill, and that she heard mysterious and frightening sounds. Once she crept into the dining room and found it empty, though a partly finished meal was on the table and chairs, and plates looked as if they had been hastily pushed back when the diners rose suddenly for some reason. The child ate some fruit and biscuits, and being thirsty, she drank a glass of wine which stood nearly filled. It was sweet, and she did not know how strong it was. Very soon it made her intensely drowsy, and she went back to the nursery and shut herself in again. Frightened by the cry she heard in the huts and by the hurry sound of feet, the wine made her so sleepy that she could scarcely keep her eyes open, and she lay down on her bed and knew nothing more for a long time. Many things happened during the hours in which she slept so heavily, but she was not disturbed by the wails and the sounds of things being carried in and out of the bungalow. When she awakened, she lay and stared at the wall. The house was perfectly still. She had never known it to be so silent before. She heard neither voices nor footsteps, and wondered if everybody had got well of the cholera and all the trouble was over. She wondered also who would take care of her now her ayah was dead. There would be a new ayah, and perhaps she would know some new stories. Mary had been rather tired of the old ones. She did not cry because her nurse had died. She was not an affectionate child, and had never cared much for anyone. The noise and the hurrying about and wailing over the cholera had frightened her. She had been angry because no one seemed to remember that she was alive. Everyone was too panic-stricken to think of a little girl no one was fond of. When people had the cholera, it seemed that they remembered nothing but themselves. But if everyone had got well again, surely someone would remember to come and look for her. But no one came, and as she lay waiting, the house seemed to grow more and more silent. She heard something rustling on the matting, and when she looked down, she saw a little snake gliding along and watching her with eyes like jewels. She was not frightened, because he was a harmless little thing who would not hurt her and he seemed in a hurry to get out of the room. He slipped under the door as she watched him. How queer and quiet it is, she said. It sounds as if there was no one in the bungalow but me and the snake. Almost the next minute she heard footsteps in the compound, and then on the veranda. They were men's footsteps, and the men entered the bungalow and talked in low voices. No one went to meet or speak to them. 
and they seemed to open the doors and look into the rooms. What desolation, she heard one voice say. That pretty, pretty woman. I suppose the child too. I heard there was a child, though no one ever saw her. Mary was standing in the middle of the nursery when they opened the door a few minutes later. She looked an ugly, cross little thing and was frowning because she was beginning to be hungry and feel disgracefully neglected. The first man who came in was a large officer. She had once seen him talking to her father. He looked tired and troubled, but when he saw her, he was so startled that he almost jumped back. Barney, he cried out. There is a child here. A child alone, in a place like this. Mercy on us, who is she? I'm Mary Lennox, the little girl said, drawing herself up stiffly. She thought the man was very rude to call her father's bungalow a place like this. I fell asleep when everyone had the cholera, and I've only just woken up. Why does nobody come? It is the child no one ever saw, exclaimed the man, turning to his companions. She has actually been forgotten. Why was I forgotten, Mary said, stamping her foot. Why does nobody come? The man whose name was Barney looked at her very sadly. Mary even thought she saw him wink his eyes, as if to wink a tear away. Poor little kid, he said. There's nobody left to come. It was in that strange and sudden way that Mary found out that she had neither father nor mother left, that they had died and been carried away into the night, and that the few native servants who had not died also had left the house as quickly as they could to get out of it, none of them remembering that there was a little Missy Sahib. That was why the place was so quiet. It was true that there was no one in the bungalow but herself and the little rustling snake. Mary had liked to look at her mother from a distance and she had thought her very pretty, but she knew very little of her. She could scarcely have been expected to love her, or to miss her very much when she was gone. She did not miss her at all, in fact. As she was a self-absorbed child, she gave her entire thought to herself, as she had always done. If she had been older, she would no doubt have been very anxious at being left alone in the world, but she was very young, and she had always been taken care of. She supposed she always would be. What she thought was that she would like to know if she was going to nice people. He would be polite to her and give her her own way, as her ayah and the other native servants had done. She knew that she was not going to stay at the English clergyman's house where she was taken first. She did not want to stay. The English clergyman was poor and had five children nearly all the same age, and they wore shabby clothes and were always quarrelling and snatching toys from each other. Mary hated their untidy bungalow and was so disagreeable to them that after the first day or two, nobody would play with her. By the second day, they had given her a nickname, which made her furious. It was Basil who thought of it first. Basil was a little boy with impudent blue eyes and a turned-up nose, and Mary hated him. She was playing by herself under a tree, just as she had been playing the day the cholera broke out. She was making heaps of earth and paths for a garden and Basil came and stood near to watch her. Presently, he got rather interested, and suddenly made a suggestion. Why don't you put a heap of stones in there, and pretend it's a rockery, he said. There, in the middle, and he leaned over to her point. Go away, cried Mary, I don't want boys, go away. For a moment, Basil looked angry, and then he began to tease. He was always teasing his sisters. He danced around and round her, and made faces and sang and laughed. He sang until the other children heard and laughed too, and the crosser Mary got the more they sang, Mistress Mary, quite contrary. And after that, as long as she stayed with them, they called her Mistress Mary, quite contrary, when they spoke of her to each other and often when they spoke to her. 
You're going to be sent home, Basil said to her, at the end of the week, and we're glad of it. I'm glad of it too, answered Mary. Where is home? She doesn't know where home is, said Basil, with a seven-year-old scorn. It's England, of course. Our grandma lives there, and our sister Mabel was sent to her last year. You are not going to your grandma. You have none. You're going to your uncle. His name is Mr. Archibald Craven. I don't know anything about him, snapped Mary. I know you don't, answered Basil. You don't know anything. Girls never do. I heard father and mother talking about him. He lives in a great big desolate old house in the country, and no one goes near him. He's so cross he won't let them, and they wouldn't come if he would let them. He's a hunchback. He's horrid. I don't believe you, said Mary, and she turned her back and stuck her fingers in her ear, because she would not listen any more. But she thought over it a great deal afterwards, and when Mrs Crawford told her that night that she was going to sail away to England in a few days and go to her uncle, Mr Archibald Craven, who lived at Mistlethwaite Manor. She looked so stony and stubbornly uninterested that they did not know what to think about her. They tried to be kind to her, but she only turned her face away when Mrs Crawford attempted to kiss her, and held her stiffly when Mr Crawford patted her on the shoulder. She is such a plain child, Mrs Crawford said pityingly afterwards, and her mother was such a pretty creature, and she had such a pretty manner too. And Mary has the most unattractive ways I've ever seen in a child. The children call her Mistress Mary Quite Quincheri, and though it's naughty of them, one can't help understanding it. Perhaps if her mother had carried her pretty face and her pretty manners oftener to the nursery, Mary might have learned some pretty ways too. It's very sad. It is very sad now the beautiful thing is gone, to remember that many people never even knew she had a child at all. I believe she scarcely ever looked at her, sighed Mrs Crawford. When her ayah was dead, there was no one to give a thought to the little thing. Think of the servants running away and leaving her all alone in that deserted bungalow. Colonel McGrew said he nearly jumped out of his skin when he opened the door and found her standing by herself in the middle of the room. Mary made the long voyage to England under the care of an officer's wife, who was taking her children to leave them in a boarding school. She was very much absorbed in her own little boy and girl and was rather glad to hand the child over to the woman Mr Archibald Craven sent to meet her in London. The woman was his housekeeper, at Mistlethwaite Manor, and her name was Mrs Medlock. She was a stout woman, with very red cheeks and sharp black eyes. She wore a very purple dress, a black silk mantle with a jet fringe, and a black bonnet with purple velvet flowers, which stuck up and trembled when she moved her head. Mary did not like her at all. But as she very seldom liked people, there was nothing remarkable in that. Besides, which it was very evident, Mrs. Medlock did not think much of her. My word, she's a plain little piece of goods, she said. And we heard that her mother was a beauty. She hasn't handed much of it down, has she, ma'am? Perhaps she'll improve as she grows older, the officer's wife said good-naturedly. If she were not so sallow and had a nicer expression, her features are rather good. Children alter so much. She'll have to alter a great deal, answered Mrs. Medlock, and there's nothing likely to improve children at Mistlethwaite, if you ask me. They thought Mary wasn't listening, because she was standing a little apart from them at the window of the private hotel they had gone to. She was watching the passing buses and cabs and people, but she heard quite well, and was made very curious about her uncle and the place he lived in. What sort of place was it, and what would he be like? What was a hunchback? She had never seen one. Perhaps there were none in India.
Since she had been living in other people's houses and had had no Aya, she began to feel lonely and to think queer thoughts which were new to her. She had begun to wonder why she had never seemed to belong to anyone, even when her mother and father had been alive. Other children seemed to belong to their fathers and mothers, but she had never seemed to really be anyone's little girl. She had had servants, and food, and clothes, but no one had taken any notice of her. She did not know that this was because she was a disagreeable child, but then, of course, she did not know she was disagreeable. She often thought that other people were, but she did not know that she was so herself. She thought Mrs. Medlock was the most disagreeable person she had ever seen, with her common, highly coloured face and her common fine bonnet. When the next day they set out on their journey to Yorkshire, she walked through the station to the railway carriage with her head up and trying to keep as far away from her as she could, because she did not want to seem to belong to her. It would have made her angry to think people imagined she was her little girl. But Mrs. Medlock was not in the least disturbed by her and her thoughts. She was the kind of woman who would not stand for no nonsense from young ones. At least, that is what she would have said if she had been asked. She had not wanted to go to London just when her sister Maria's daughter was going to be married. But she had a comfortable, well-paid place as a housekeeper at Mistlethwaite Manor, and the only way in which she could keep it was to do at once what Mr. Archibald Craven told her to do. She never dared even to ask a question. Captain Lennox and his wife died of cholera, Mr. Craven had said in his short, cold way. Captain Lennox is my wife's brother and I am their daughter's guardian. The child is to be brought here. You must go to London and bring her yourself. So she packed her small trunk and made the journey. Mary sat in the corner of the railway carriage and looked plain and fretful. She had nothing to read or to look at, and she had folded her little thin black gloved hands in her lap. Her black dress made her look yellower than ever, and her limp light hair straggled from under the black crepe hat. A more marred-looking young one I never saw in my life, said Mrs. Medlock. Marred is a Yorkshire word and it means spoiled and pettish. She had never seen a child who sat so still without doing anything, and at last she got tired of watching her and began to talk in a brisk, harsh voice. I suppose I may as well tell you something about where we're going to, she said. Do you know anything about your uncle? No, said Mary. Never heard your father and mother talk about him? No said Mary, frowning. She frowned because she remembered that her father and mother never talked to her about anything in particular. Certainly, they had never told her things. Hmm, <laughs> muttered Mrs. Medlock, staring at her queer, unresponsive little face. She did not say any more for a few moments, and then she began again. I suppose you might as well be told something to prepare you. You're going to a queer place. Mary said nothing at all, and Mrs. Medlock looked rather discomforted by her apparent indifference. But, after taking a breath, she went on. Not but that it's a grand big place in a gloomy way, and Mr. Craven's proud of it in his way, and that's gloomy enough too. The house is 600 years old, and it's on the edge of the moor, and there's near 100 rooms in there, though most of them shut up and locked. And there's pictures and fine old furniture, and things that's been there for ages, and there's a big park around it, and gardens, and trees, and branches trailing on the ground, some of them. She paused and took another breath. But there's nothing else, she said suddenly. Mary had begun to listen in spite of herself. It all sounded so unlike India, and anything new rather attracted her. But she did not intend to look as if she was interested. 
That was one of her unhappy, disagreeable ways. So she sat still. Well, said Mrs. Medlock, what do you think of it? Nothing, she answered. I know nothing about such places. That made Mrs. Medlock laugh a short sort of laugh. Eh, she said, but you are like an old woman, don't you care? It doesn't matter, said Mary, whether I care or not. You're right there enough, said Mrs. Medlock, it doesn't. What you're to be kept at Mistletoe Manor for, I don't know, unless because it's the easiest way. He's not going to trouble himself about you, that's for sure and certain. He never troubles himself about no one. She stopped herself as if she had just remembered something in time. He's got a crooked back, she said. That set him wrong. He was a sour young man and got no good of all his money and big place till he's married. Mary turned towards her in spite of her intention not to seem to care. She had never thought of the hunchback being married. She was a trifle surprised. Mrs. Medlock saw this, and as she was a talkative woman, she continued with more interest. This was one way of passing some time at any rate. She was a sweet pretty thing, and he'd have walked the world over to get her a blade of grass she wanted. Nobody thought she'd marry him, but she did. And people said she married him for his money, but she didn't. She didn't. Positively. When she died, Mary gave a little involuntary jump. Oh, did she die? she exclaimed, quite without meaning to. She had just remembered a French fairy story she had once read called Riquet à la Houpe. It had been about a poor hunchback and a beautiful princess, and it made her suddenly sorry for Mr. Archibald Craven. Yes, she died, Mrs. Medlock answered, and it made him queerer than ever. He cares about nobody. He won't see people. Most of the time he goes away, and when he's at Mistlethwaite, he shuts himself up in the West Wing and won't let anyone but Pitcher see him. Pitcher's an old fellow, but he took care of him when he was a child, and he knows his ways. It sounded like something in a book, and it did not make Mary feel cheerful. A house with a hundred rooms, nearly all shut up with all their doors locked. A house on the edge of a moor, whatsoever a moor was, sounded dreary. A man with a crooked back who shuts himself up also. She stared out the window with her lips pinched together, and it seemed quite natural that the rain should have begun to pour down in grey slanting lines and splash and stream down the window panes. If the pretty wife had been alive, she might have made things cheerful, and being something like her mother, by running in and out and going to parties as she had done in frocks, full of lace. But she was not there anymore. You needn't expect to see him, because ten to one you won't, said Mrs. Medlock, and you mustn't expect that there'll be people to talk to you. You have to play about and look after yourself. You'll be told what rooms you can go into and what rooms you're to keep out of. There's garden enough. When you're in the house, don't go wandering and poking about. Mr. Craven won't have it. I shall not want to go poking about, said sour little Mary. And just as suddenly, she had began to be rather sorry for Mr. Archibald Craven. She began to cease to be sorry and to think he was unpleasant enough to deserve all that happened to him and she turned her face towards the streaming panes of the window of the railway carriage and gazed out into the grey rainstorm, which looked as if it might go on forever and ever. She watched it so long and steadily that the greyness grew heavier and heavier before her eyes, and she fell asleep.